if you have never heard of uh, Chris McCandless, that's, that's not that surprising. But let me tell you that Chris McCandless was briefly famous uh, when a, 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 a couple of articles and a book about his life was written and released in 1996, and then it was made into a movie in 2007, and the name of the book was Into the Wild. And here's the summary that I got online for the movie. After graduating from Emory University, top student and athlete Christopher McCandless abandons his possessions, gives his entire $24,000 savings account to charity, and hitchhikes to Alaska to live in the wilderness. Along the way, Christopher encounters a series of characters that shape his life. That sounds great. This is based on a true story. Uh, after a series of somewhat reckless adventures in the lower 48, Chris did, in fact, make his way up to Alaska, uh, got on one of the big trails and heading off into the uh, Alaskan wilderness. So he, uh, he intended, actually, to hike all the way to the Bering Sea, but uh, he found the conditions too treacherous, and so he found an abandoned bus, a bus that had been left there by a construction crew, and he set up camp in this abandoned uh, bus out in the Alaskan wilderness. He became something of an inspiration to a lot of people. People talked about Chris McCandless as sort of a modern-day Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau, of course, spent two years, two months, and two days at Walden Pond learning to live simply, living off of the land. But then, of course, he came home and spent two more years composing his book, Walden, where he talks about his whole experience and why he did what he did. Chris McCandless, on the other hand, went into the wilderness woefully ill-equipped and underprepared and died of starvation within four months. So his book was not written by him. It was written by somebody who found out about his story and, and uh, recorded it for posterity. This did not keep him from becoming a heroic figure. I find his story somewhat less inspirational than tragic, but there were numerous articles written about him. Uh, there was the book. There were two feature-length uh, films, there was a phenomenon wherein the bus that he lived in and where his body was ultimately found became a sort of pilgrimage site for people. People were hiking off into the Alaskan wilderness to visit the magic bus, which is what Chris had named it in his journal. So much so that at least one person died trying to get to the bus and several other people had to be uh, rescued by uh, emergency personnel. And so <laughs> the Alaskan government eventually removed the bus from the wilderness and moved it to a museum. So people that wanted to come see it could go to the museum and not, uh, not risk their lives in order to visit the magic bus. <coughs> it is still debated in these circles to this day whether McCandless is an idealist or an idiot, maybe an idiotic idealist or an idealistic idiot. 
I want to say that there is some truth to the rather romantic notion of the wilderness. That going to the wilderness and pursuing the simplicity of that, getting away from all of the noise of modern culture and going off into the wilderness can be a very productive thing. I've spent a fair bit of time in the wilderness myself. We did a lot of wilderness trips in Colorado. And getting away from modern technology where your phones don't work and, and getting into a space where you just are completely focused on the beauty of God's creation and the simplicity of that and living off of the few things that you've managed to carry on your back into that space is, is a great experience, a wonderful discipline, an opportunity to learn and grow and maybe even to connect more with God. There is a wisdom that can emerge from that. But I would also say, if you do not respect the wilderness, it will try to kill you. And if you do not learn from, if you do not take the opportunity to learn from and then come back and share what you have learned, then it sort of becomes pointless. The wilderness can become our prison if it never lets go of us. What use is an adventure? What use is a lesson? What use is wisdom if you cannot escape the place from which you gain it? This is a kind of important because the Bible is really full of wilderness stories, and they kind of run the gamut. Wilderness is a huge theme in Scripture, both in terms of actual physical wilderness experiences and also in terms of sort of the spiritual wilderness that we sometimes find ourselves in. It's a huge and important theme in the scripture. And sometimes the wilderness leads to a new revelation, a new understanding, a new relationship with God. And then other times the wilderness just becomes a symbol of despair and wandering and being lost. You remember Israel, the nation of Israel, when they escape their captivity in Egypt and they first find themselves wandering about the wilderness and the question for the first time arises of where they're going to get water, they immediately start complaining about being in the wilderness. Why did you bring us here? Did you bring us here to die? And then when they reach, when they reach the boundaries of the promised land, when they should be ready to go into the promised land, make this journey for this reason, they stand outside the promised land, and in fear, they reject the opportunity to leave the wilderness. And so they remain there for another 40 years. The wilderness becomes their prison, their punishment, if you will, rather than an opportunity to forge this new relationship with God. Today's passage, passages really in Matthew reflect on the importance of wilderness. Now, as you, as you heard in the video, Matthew's gospel opens with the prophetic credibility of Jesus as Messiah. And we talked about this a little bit last week. He gets into the genealogy of Jesus, that he is a descendant of David. Uh, he gets into the virgin birth of Jesus. That is the fulfillment of prophecy he gets into the location. Bethlehem is another fulfillment of prophecy. He talks about the story of these wise men coming from the east, which ties 
this story to the prophecy of Daniel back in Babylon. And then he goes on and he talks about the family of Jesus escaping to Egypt, which he says is a fulfillment of the prophecy that out of Egypt I will call my son. He talks about Herod commanding that all the infants, infant boys under two years old be slaughtered. And he says this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that a voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. And then he talks about the family returning, but sort of moving to Nazareth. And he says this is so that it would fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And then we find ourselves in chapter 3, beginning of chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. So John the Baptist is the voice in the wilderness. And it's not just Isaiah that prophesies about this voice in the, in the wilderness. Uh, you might remember that we came across him in Malachi as well. In two places in Malachi, talks about John the Baptist. In one place it says that I will send a messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah. And another place it says, I will send Elijah the prophet before the Messiah comes. Matthew confirms that this is the guy that fulfills that prophecy. Christ himself will confirm that he has come in the spirit of Elijah. All of that will happen. But know this, that the people are already wondering this about John before anybody confirms it. And they're wondering for a number of reasons. They're going out to the wilderness to hear what he has to say. He has followers in spite of the fact that his location is terrible. He looks like Elijah. He dresses like Elijah. They had a very particular fashion sense. Both of them wore skins with a leather belt around their waist. He is uh, preaching a gospel of repentance in a time of very evil kings, just like Elijah. So the Messiah is expected. Elijah is expected to show up before the Messiah. This messenger is expected to show up before the Messiah. And here John the Baptist starts speaking in prophetic tones out in the wilderness looking very much like the people would have imagined Elijah to look. And so people are coming out to hear what he has to say, and they're responding to this message of repentance. And repentance, we sometimes confuse repentance and confession. Confession is me acknowledging what my sins are. Repentance is my decision to turn, to change direction completely. So it's a little bit different. I could acknowledge to you uh, that this week I, ha I had sin. I had sin in my life this week. I had bad attitudes, and I had uh, there's, there's things that I, I should know better. But that's my confession. Repentance means that I'm traveling in one direction, and I make a decision that I'm going to travel in a completely different direction. That is very important because it precedes kingdom. 
Matthew 3, uh, verses 7 through 10, when he saw, this is John, John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our, as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Repentance prepares the way for the king and his kingdom. So here we are. The time is right. The Messiah should be showing up. Here's this prophetic voice out in the wilderness that looks a lot like Elijah. And what is that voice saying? Saying that the kingdom is near, that you need to get ready, that we need to prepare the way for the Messiah, you need to prepare yourself for the Messiah, and you need to change the direction of your life. Particularly, particularly pointed this message at the religious elite. He tells them, he tells them, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, make your fruit match what your words say. Change the direction of your life. Why is that so important? Because this king, along with everything else, is going to be a fruit inspector. He's going to check and see what you're actually doing with your life. He's going to make a determination about that. And everybody that's not producing healthy fruit is going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. This is not the message about Jesus that we most often hear. This is not the encouraging word that you're used to hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is where everything begins. It begins with this repentance. Change your direction. He talks about this baptism that the king is going to bring. It's going to be a baptism of spirit and of fire. And John doesn't talk about these things in the kind of euphoric sense that we often talk about them. Oh, Holy Spirit, come. I want the fire of God. I want that passion. Those are all good things, but that's not what John's talking about here. He says the Holy Spirit's coming and the fire's coming, and it's going to be a purifying fire. It's going to burn off all the chaff. It's going to burn off everything that doesn't belong. This king, and remember, the prophecies about this coming king, the prophecies that we've studied just here in the last couple of months, talk about a new city of Jerusalem that is going to be ruled by the righteousness of God. Now, that's either comforting or terrifying, depending on where you're coming from. John is essentially saying to the people, look, the righteousness of God is in fact coming. That's going to be the standard, the righteousness of God. So if you are not in a place where you can welcome the righteousness of God, this would be the time to repent of that and get yourself on the right path. This is a baptism of fire, a baptism of purification. This new king who's coming is either going to be welcomed or is going to be feared depending on the relationship that you personally have with God's righteousness. 
Then we pick up the story in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deny him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now, what is going on here? What is the, why does this happen? Theologians and preachers, we're all still debating oftentimes why Jesus is baptized at all. I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus is baptized in order to begin a ministry of intercession. Jesus himself says, we're going to do this, John, to fulfill all righteousness. I think it's kind of hilarious that John knows who he is and wants to deny him what he asks for. Isn't that how we kind of all function sometimes? Like, I know who you are, Jesus, but I don't think you have the best plan. Let me tell you what my better plan is. Jesus says, just, just bear with me, child. Let me tell you what's really going on. So we're going to do this. We're going to do this because it's an appeal to righteousness. It's going to fulfill righteousness. Now, this is a challenge to us. How do, how do we understand exactly what's going on? Jesus doesn't need any help becoming righteous because he's already righteous. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, and Jesus doesn't need repentance. So what is the righteousness that we're talking about? I believe he's not talking about his own righteousness. He's talking about the righteousness of of the law of Moses. There's something about the law of Moses that needs to be fulfilled in this instant. And what part of it is it that this fulfills? We have to remember that even though John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, baptism doesn't just suddenly flash onto the scene. We as Christians sometimes read the scriptures this way, like baptism just came out of nowhere. John and Jesus got together and said, hey, what kind of initiation rite do we have? Let, let's, let's dunk people underwater. No, baptism is simply a form of mikvah. And it had been a part of the, uh, it had been a part of the law for as long as the law existed. And a mikvah is essentially a ceremonial cleansing. And so you might have a mikvah bath for a, a wide number of reasons, sometimes because you were gen genuinely uh, touched by something that was corrupted, and sometimes it's just ceremonial. Sometimes you participated in it as part of a ceremonial cleansing to testify to the importance of being perfect before God. So this is a mikvah bath. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The goal of Jesus' ministry, ultimately, is to become an intercession for the people. He's going to intercede between humanity and God. This is the part of the story that the people who are first encountering Jesus don't know yet. It's the part of the story that John himself is going to have his doubts about down the road. But his objective is to be an intercession for the people. What does that mean? Well, essentially it means that Jesus will be a priest. 
Now, that's not news to us. It's not news to us because we can read all about it in Hebrews, how Jesus is the high, our high priest. Would have been news to the people. Would have been something for them to try to absorb that reality. For one thing, he's a member of the tribe of Judah. He's not a member of the right tribe. He needed to be from the tribe of Levi. In fact, he needed to be a descendant, a direct descendant of Aaron to come into the priesthood. Now, we don't have a problem with that because Hebrews tells us Jesus is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's a whole other story. We'll get into that another time. But Melchizedek is that weird, mysterious priest who shows up and ministers to Abraham before there is a priesthood of Aaron. Melchizedek just exists. He come, seems to come directly from God. That's the kind of priest that Jesus is. What are their qualifications? What, what is the ritual for becoming a priest under the law? Well, there's, there's at least three things that have to happen. First of all, you have to turn 30. Jesus has just turned 30. You've got to be 30 years old to officially enter the priesthood. And then at the ceremony for making you a priest, you would be ceremonially washed, and then you would be anointed with oil. Jesus shows up, says to John, this is the right thing to do. Why is it the right thing? Well, because I've turned 30. You're going to wash me ceremonially. And then I'm going to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then guess who's going to show up to announce my formal priesthood? God himself is going to speak from heaven and say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Then, beginning of chapter 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, uh, this is important. We know it's important because generally speaking, you don't have to go anywhere to be tempted. I'm tempted in my house, tempted driving around town. I don't have to go to the wilderness to be tempted. But Jesus is specifically going into the wilderness for this purpose. These things are tied together. The wilderness is important. This moment of temptation is important. I can't hardly believe that Satan stopped trying to tempt Jesus at this point. That this, there's, there's something significant about this particular event at this particular place. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness to attest faithfulness. Now that number 40, of course, you know, shows up repeatedly in Scripture, and it is very often associated with the wilderness. Both of them seem to be tied to the idea of being tested and the idea of having an opportunity to turn back to God. So we know that in the days of the flood, of Noah's flood, that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses escapes Egypt after accidentally killing somebody. He runs away from Egypt and spends 40 years in Midian. After he returns and he leads the people out of Egypt, he spends 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai communing with God. 
Later, he interceded for Israel, interceded between Israel and God for 40 days and 40 nights. When they reach the Jordan, when they reach the borders of the Holy Land, the 12 spies go in. How long do they spend spying on the new land? 40 days. And yet, when they come back, the people don't have enough faith to enter into the land, and so guess where they get to spend the next 40 years wandering around the wilderness. Even Elijah, our old friend Elijah, the story about him having one meal that nourishes him enough that he fasts for the next 40 days and 40 nights while he crosses the desert and makes his way to a cave where he has an encounter with God where God appears to him in a still, small voice. Sometimes the wilderness is about enlightenment, and sometimes the wilderness is about despair. In this story, the significance is that Jesus will be faithful where Israel was unfaithful. They spend 40 years wandering around the wilderness because of their faithlessness in the face of God's promise. He will spend 40 days in the wilderness demonstrating his faithfulness to God in spite of whatever temptation he has to face. And he faces Satan, and there are three temptations. What's the significance of that? Well, this is a priestly intercession. And Jesus is demonstrating that he has the right, that he is worthy of being our perfect high priest. Now we go back, remember, to the story of Adam and Eve, the fall in the garden. And what does it say? That Eve is being tempted by the serpent, and then she looks at this fruit and decides that it is good for food, that it is pleasant to look at, and it is desirable for wisdom. Now, I want you to note something really interesting about that. None of those things in and of itself is particularly sinful. You're going to go upstairs. Hopefully, all of you are going to go upstairs after this, and you're going you're to look at some food that's going to be desirable to eat. There's nothing wrong with that. There are going to be things that you see that please your eye. There's nothing wrong with that. Certainly the pursuit of wisdom, there's nothing wrong with that. What this is, is the serpent, this is Satan manipulating even our healthy desire, turning it into something else, in order to get us to turn on God. Because the one thing that's broken about what happens with Adam and Eve is they break the one rule that God has given them. They defy God. It all seems so innocent. It all seems so easy. It just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. First John tells us that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that all of these things come from the world. That they don't come from God. Essentially what we're saying here is that humanity has fallen to appetite entitlement, and pride. And so what are these three temptations that Jesus faces? First of all, Satan says, feed yourself, turn these stones into bread. 
after 40 days of fasting, that might seem like a pretty reasonable request. He's appealing to Jesus' appetite. But Jesus recognizes that he's being manipulated, and he says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. And this is sort of his solution to all of these problems. He quotes the word at Satan. Remember that next time you're tempted. Quote the word at Satan. Shuts him down quickly. Satan then says, throw yourself from the temple. Let the angels catch you. Appealing to Jesus' sense of entitlement. Jesus says, you shall not test the Lord your God. Finally, Satan says, well, just bow to me and you'll receive the whole world. I'll give you everything. Remember, at the end of Jesus' life, in the garden, there's a a big part of him that doesn't want to go through with this. There's a big part of him that would like this particular cup, this particular sacrifice to skip him over. There's a big part of him that says, if there's another way, Dad, could we do that other way? And here's Satan saying, hey, I got another way for you. You, you want to be king of the world? I, I, I got your back. Worship me. I'll give, it, I'll give it all to you. I'll turn it over to you right now. Appealing to Jesus' pride. This compromise. Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is where we come back to to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. The same kinds of temptations that we face all the time. Jesus faces the temptations that have undone humanity. Now let's not underemphasize that. Let's not rationalize that. Let's not play games with that the way that we often do. We like to think that we're pretty good people and the people that we know are pretty good people. People are broken and they're pretty lousy ultimately. People are sinful and fallen. They're not pretty good. We have to stop mistaking likability for righteousness. Most everyone that I know has some qualities that I can admire, qualities that I find likable. This doesn't make them righteous. doesn't make me righteous. People are broken. These temptations have undone us. So we are tempted by our appetite. Do, do we put what we want before what God wants. That's the standard. Entitlement. Do, do, do we convince ourselves that we deserve to defy God, that God should continue to bless us in spite of it? And pride. Are we still playing the old game of self-righteousness? Am I pretending that I'm enough somehow? Uh, come on, let's be honest. Some of us were, were thinking selfishly this morning as we came in. Some of us were feeling entitled as we arrived. And that's, that's Sunday go-to-meeting time. 
If we're, if we're not righteous when we're coming together as a church, how are we going to be righteous when we're being the church out in the world? We're broken. We're broken. Jesus passes the test that everyone fails. Now, is that good news or is that bad news? Well, it really depends, doesn't it? It depends on the relationship with him that we've cultivated. Here's the scary thing. The wilderness established Jesus as both our intercessory priest and our righteous judge. He's our priest because he can intercede with God for us without any impediment. There's no purification rite that he has to go through now. There's no pretend righteousness that he has to put on. He doesn't have to go through all of the rigmarole that the old priesthood did because he is already righteous. He is so righteous, so perfect, that he even has the opportunity, the possibility, and ultimately the will to offer himself as the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. But all that perfection sort of leaves us without any excuse. When we come to the conclusion that we're doing pretty good, it's usually because we're comparing ourselves to someone who's doing worse. When we compare ourselves to the righteousness of Jesus, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I'm doing all that well. Not compared to him. His righteousness makes our unrighteousness just sort of pop onto the radar. And so as we make excuses and we justify ourselves and we demand our rights, and we become sort of self-satisfied, happy where we are. Jesus is bringing a fire. A fire that will either ignite a passion within us or a fire that will burn us up, depending on what path we're on, what relationship we have, whether or not we have received the repentance received the perfection from him that he has to offer to us and this is the point of all of this this morning repentance is still the right response to the kingdom it's still the right response we still if, we, if we're really serious about kingdom if we want kingdom to show up still the beginning place is to make a u-turn the beginning place is is to take where we were going and change directions completely to arrive at a different path that has a different conclusion. And if we do that, if we do that, then we can welcome the king with joy. And if we don't do that, we will have to fear his coming.